All right, everyone, we're going to go ahead and get started. Thank you for coming to Stem Cells and Regenerative Medicine. Our faculty today is Dr. Joshi. Please help me welcome Dr. Joshi. Hello, how are you all doing today? Um, so some of you probably came to the presentation earlier today that I had on uh, failed back surgery syndrome. And um, what we, we went into briefly, actually, at the end of the presentation with uh, some of the audience that stayed later, uh, we talked about stem cells and we talked about regenerative medicine. Uh, and we briefly got into how, you know, the utilization of stem cells may actually be potentially the future of medicine because you're able to, in theory, regenerate um, a problem area as opposed to cutting it and splicing it and putting screws in and creating scar tissue. So what we want to do today is talk a little more about stem cells and regenerative medicine, um, going into a deeper dive of what is regenerative medicine, who is it for, when do we use it, what does it entail, what does that term mean, and talk about stem cells as well. A lot of people think that stem cells and regenerative medicine are the same thing, and in fact they're not. Uh, stem cells are a subcomponent of this regenerative medicine field that we're going to continue seeing growing over the next many years. So hopefully this will give you uh, a few uh, um, uh, nice pearls that you can take back uh, when you see your patients. I have no disclosures for this uh, presentation. So our learning obje objectives today are one, to review the overview of inflammation, so we understand this whole process that's occurring when patients come to you with a problem. Number two, define what regenerative medicine actually means. Number three, go over a review of the history of stem cells, where we have been and where we are today. Number four, differentiate the different types of stem cells that are available. Number five, discuss autologous stem cells. Number six, discuss non-autologous stem cells. And then finally, compare non-stem cell regenerative products. So with that, how many people here know about inflammation? Right, everyone. I had a, uh, I gave a presentation, this was probably back in, I think, 2008, I believe, and um, I remember distinctly, so this guy comes into this dinner pre presentation, and he's de dressed in, like, this camouflage gear. Okay, so this is a physician dressed in camouflage gear at a formal dinner presentation. And um, anyway, long story short, it just, it just went downhill from there, but... And it looked, <laughs> Long story short, he, uh, he genuinely believed that inflammation is, has nothing to do with pain. He, he has this idea that inflammation and pain are completely disconnected. Um, and I tried politely to educate him, but I don't think I did. Uh, pain and inflammation are very much related. And inflammation is uh, obviously something that can be provoked through a lot of different stimuli. Okay? There can be physical stimuli, chemical stimuli, and various biological functions that can occur that uh, cause inflammation. So obviously we all know the classic signs of inflammation, you know, the redness, the swelling, uh, sometimes loss of function. You know, inflammation is not necessarily a bad thing. It's our body's way of protecting itself and it's the body's way of healing itself. But what happens with inflammation when it, it goes beyond what the normal functions are is it can cause a delay in healing. So the exact opposite of what it was meant to do. It can decrease our appetite. You know, when we have a lot of inflammation and a lot of pain, we don't really feel like doing much. We don't really feel like eating. And I've always wondered, why is that? You know, why, why is it that when we're sick, we get nauseous? It doesn't make any sense to me. 
You know, you'd think that when you're sick, you'd want to eat more so you have more fuel, but, but that's not what happens. We, we start seeing a decrease in appetite, decrease in function, decrease in wanting to do stuff. We start seeing an increase in stress, which does the exact opposite of what, what we want it to do from a healing standpoint. And then finally, it disrupts sleep and it disrupts concentration, which is, again, the exact opposite of what we want to do. As we all know, sleep very much plays a role with pain, both acute and chronic pain. You know, cortisol levels, all those things get affected. So we have this cycle that we enter with inflammation, and we call it the non-resolving inflammation cycle. And once you're on this little hamster wheel, you know, it's very hard to just jump off that hamster wheel, and then, it, and then you start developing this chronic pain, you know, issues, and then we have these big conferences like Pain Week, uh, where we try to figure out how we can stop this, this hamster wheel. But it's important to, to note that when you see a patient who has this non-resolving inflammation you try to figure out why does this patient have it, right? Diagnosis is important. So is it, you know, inadequate uh, responses to the inflammatory mediators? Is it a prolonged response? Is it a suboptimal response? Is it a response that is persistent because the patient is literally every day causing that problem? So, for example, certain food allergens or certain substances they may have an allergy to or, even worse, have a sensitivity to. Uh, sensitivities to whether it's food or other environmental products is something that goes very underdiagnosed, in my opinion, and it's why people have this persistent just, I don't feel good. And, and in fact, what they're doing is on a daily basis exposing themselves to these really inflammatory uh, mediators. Various other issues, autoimmune issues, and you know, irritable bowel in- issues, obesity con- contributes to inflammation very much. So you know, losing weight is a discussion that we have to have with our patients not just from a, you know, the traditional health standpoint, the cardiovascular standpoint. It's not just from a vanity standpoint. It's it really obesity and, and just fat cells in general uh, cause inflammation. Uh, so we see a lot of the, the, the oxidative responses with, uh, with fat cells. So trying to figure out you know, what the root cause is is incredibly important. When we sort of dial back and look at the history of, 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 the, of inflammation of the immune system, we find that as We've all, you know, we all know, right, the immune system uh, and the neurologic system are very much closely related from embryonic development. But if we go even farther back uh, to, to really the beginning of life, we see this close relationship between CNS development and the immune system. And we find that as the this, this CNS systems become more complicated, our ability to regenerate becomes less um, uh, prevalent. The nervous, so nervous system complexity and, um, and regenerative ability are inversely proportional. And we also see that uh, with the immune system. The immune system becomes more complex as the nervous system becomes more complex, and that's both good and bad. So ultimately, we're left with this non-resolving inflammatory process, and then we have a bunch of different things that we use to try to treat that non-resolving inflammatory process. What we want to focus on today, obviously, is the regenerative part of it. Okay, we're not going to focus on any of the other methods that are available within uh, uh, medicine or within the chronic pain world. So what is regenerative medicine? It is a branch of medicine that deals with the process of replacing, repairing, or restoring normal tissue and function. Regenerative medicine also includes the possibility of growing tissues or organs, either in a laboratory uh, and implanting them, uh, or even within the body itself, when the body can't heal, it, heal itself. And regenerative medicine involves both stem cells, um, whether they're autologous or non-autologous, 
and involves a variety of different growth factors that can be uh, available through a, a bunch of different technologies and different products that we'll dive into today. So some of the regenerative medicine therapies that we already use in the healing environment include things like non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. You're allowing the body to maybe regenerate on its own, right, by, by reducing the inflammation, this persistent inflammation. Uh, oral steroids or injectable steroids are a way to, again, allow the body to, to heal so the function gets restored. Synthetic hyaluronic acid, which uh, maybe many of you have, have used on patients or even had maybe yourself, especially in, in the knee, uh, has been available. PRP, platelet-rich plasma, has been around for a few decades. We'll discuss that in a little more detail. Amniotic fluid liquid suspension has growth factors. We'll talk about that a little more as well. Uh, Wharton jelly liquid suspension, which uh, contains stem cells as well as some growth factors, which we'll talk about as well in some more detail in a little bit. And then there's cellular products. So cellular products include lipoaspirate concentrate. Uh, in a nutshell, that includes stem cells that are derived from the patient's own adipose cells or stromovascular fractionated cells. There's bone marrow aspirate, so stem cells that are derived from the patient's own bone marrow. Uh, umbilical cord blood, which contains uh, some stem cells, and uh, umbilical cord mesenchymal stem cells. So PRP is a, a term that I'm sure many of you are familiar with. It's been around for, uh, since 1987, at least. And uh, how many of you are familiar with PRP? Okay. How, or how many are not familiar with PRP? So like pretty much, pretty much everyone. We have uh, about, what, maybe 70 people here. Pretty much everyone is familiar with uh, PRP. So PRP is uh, platelet-rich plasma. It's defined as autologous blood with concentrations of platelets above baselines that contain at least seven growth factors. It's taken directly from the patient's own blood and then injected into the affected area. And that could include muscles, joints. Uh, these growth factors then trigger local inflammation, uh, collagen production, and other regenerative processes. So PRP does not contain stem cells. It contains growth factors. It contains cytokines. It contains different proteins. It contains different agents that allow the body to heal itself. So some of the advantages with PRP, uh, the most obvious ones are, you know, one, it's autologous. It means it's coming from your own body, and so it's readily available. Number two, it's relatively cheap. Again, when we talk about expensive and cheap within medicine, everything's a relative term. But it's relatively cheap. I mean, I think... I don't know anyone out there that charges more than $1,000 for PRP. Uh, most clinics, it's in the, uh, you know, a few, you know, hundreds of dollars. And it can be reproducible geographically. So, again, if, as long as people are using the right protocols and the right techniques, you know, whether we do it on the East Coast, West Coast, or anywhere in between, it should all be the same. So what are some of the disadvantages? Well, number one, there can be side effects that can occur right at the site of the injection. So there can be some swelling that can occur. Again, these are... These are cell-mediating uh, proteins that are delivered, so you expect an inflammatory response, at least briefly. That's, that's how it works. That's how it heals. So that can actually increase the pain and stiffness um, that the patient already has. Infection is a possibility. Anytime we're using anything that's autologous or non-autologous, but if there's, if there's living cells in there and they're living blood products uh, that haven't been terminally sterilized, you obviously run the risk of spreading an infection. There are unwanted products in PRP. So there are 
certain cytokines that uh, we don't want, you know, certain cell mediators that we don't want. Uh, there are inflammatory cells and inflammatory mediators that we don't necessarily want that we are going to be in- injecting. And like I said, there could be viruses, bacteria, whatever, um, other infections that, that we may be transposing when using PRP. And uh, then finally, many questions exist. And those are very simple questions. You know, for, for example, what are the indications for PRP? You know, we use them for, for a bunch of different things, but we really don't, you know, there's no FDA-approved, you know, indication for PRP. And it's not like you can get it off the shelf, right? You're getting your own cells. You're getting your own blood. So how effective is that compared to someone else? You know, are we, how mu- what growth factors are we getting from you versus another patient? How much of those growth factors are we getting from you versus, versus another patient? How much should we use? How much, you know, one cc, two cc's? Well, what does one cc contain? We don't know. Every patient is different. So, and, and what is the frequency that we should do these things? Should we do these every month, every two months, every six months? You know, uh, we don't know. Then finally, you know, what type of rehab is best afterwards? What's the period, post-operative course that's best after you use PRP? So these questions are still up in the air. Even, you know, 30 years later, we're still a- asking the same questions, and we don't really have great answers to those questions. We have a lot of opinions, and I'm sure if I opened up to questions right now, we'd get you know, 10, 20 different opinions. But the fact is, we don't have a perfect answer to that. So those are some of the disadvantages that we see with PRP. And then, of course, anytime there's a disadvantage, it opens it up to better technologies and better products. And that's what we have now. We have better p- technologies and products uh, than PRP. So stem cells, everyone has heard of stem cells. It's kind of like the hot sort of buzzword now in, in the medical world. But you know, what are stem cells? Where do they come from? What do they do? You know, what are the controversies? Are we, are we still crushing babies? You know, we're not. Um, adult stem cell research started about 40 years ago. And, uh, and really even more than that. But uh, you know, back in the, in the 60s, we, they found that there were two sort of um, populations of stem cells that they were able to identify. And uh, those were hematopoietic stem cells and bone marrow stromal cells, which are still used today. Right? So we use you know, blood-derived stem cells and we use bone marrow-derived stem cells. You know, pushing that clock along, you know, we get to the 90s, and we start uh, discovering that there are also neural stem cells that are available that are able to differentiate into uh, neuronal cells and, and brain cells. And uh, that was a you know, big advancement, and we're making some progress. And then you know, we start hitting the, the, the 90s and, and the 2000s, and we start running into a bunch of political issues surrounding stem cells. Because at that time, uh, we were using human embryos for research. And so obviously the, the debate was, you know, is that ethical, is it not? We're not going to get into that, that debate, but, but uh, fortunately, while in, in America some of the stem cell research, especially from a private practice, clinical, IRB um, uh, standpoint, you know, NIH grants and all those things were, were limited, uh, the rest of the world was still moving forward. So it, it all, that's why in America it almost seems like overnight you know, we have this big resurgence of stem cells in regenerative medicine. Everyone on every street corner now is, claims that they're doing stem cells. Um, that's happened because, you know, during this, this asleep mode that we had during the 2000s, the rest of the world was really developing technologies. And, and so we have technologies here now where we can use autologous and non-autologous stem cells. And we'll talk about, you know, as we move on, we'll, we'll continue to talk about um, some of the problems with the proliferation of regenerative medicine and how it's kind of now evolved into a buyer beware um, uh, environment. 
So there's three types of stem cells that you need to be familiar with. Uh, there are totipotent stem cells, pluripotent stem cells, and multipotent stem cells. So totipotent stem cells are the cells that you will find in embryos. Uh, those are the cells that exist during the first few days of life. Those are not the stem cells that we use uh, for, therapeutic, for therapeutic reasons in clinical medicine. There's pluripotent stem cells, and those cells can vary uh, from over 200 different types of cell types. And we see some of those, again, in the embryonic development. Uh, and we don't use those cells um, when we're talking about, hey, let's do a stem cell deployment to a patient. Those aren't the cells that we were talking about. Then finally, we're looking at multipotent stem cells. So those are cells that are differentiated, but they can form a variety of tissues. Uh, and that, those, those cells can come from adult stem cells. They can come from fetal tissue as well. And they can come from cord blood. They can come from you know, placental tissue as well. So those are some of the cells that we're talking about when we start telling patients that we're doing stem cell deployments. So what are some of the uses or potential uses of stem cells? Really, I mean, your imagination, it's limited just to your imagination. Right now, we, we have, obviously, theories of how we can do so many different things with stem cells. But ultimately, what, what are we doing right now? Well, research is definitely taking place, both on the university level as well as on the private practice and, and clinical level. Uh, research is being taken place uh, on, on patients who are enrolling right now for a variety of different conditions. And that can include anything from joint disorders, you know, you know knees, hips, you know, ankles, shoulders, whatever, uh, all the way to ne neurodegenerative disorders, which includes things like MS, um, Parkinson's, uh, ALS, stroke. Uh, we've, uh, we've also injected stem cells uh, into uh, discs, for disc regeneration, a uh, few people have, have uh, done that. There's papers out there now on, on results. And some, some have actually shown an a, uh, uh, increase in size of discs uh, after stem cells, you know, six months out, eight months out. So, again, avoiding surgery, right? Avoiding even potentially injections because you're actually seeing a regenerative effect. So, again, you know, your, your, your imagination is the only limit to where potentially regenerative medicine and stem cells can go. As, uh, there was a, an announcement recently, I won't mention the, the companies, but there, there are actually a couple companies that have used um, stem cells and stem cell derivatives uh, from an oncological standpoint. So what they're doing is they're taking cells and they're either changing the cells or taking components of the cells or virus tagging the cells to potentially attack tumors and be very specific to attacking tumors. So I think that, that the immunological approach of attacking cancer is probably the future of oncology, and that's all part of, you know, really derivatives of regenerative medicine and stem cells. So homologous cells and tissue products, uh, or HCT slash P, those have been around for, again, quite a while. The, the um, decisions of how they should be used in clinical medicine or the edicts that have, that have come out and how they should be used by the FDA are pretty well set, and these are things that you guys should all be familiar with. So there's two different sections that you need to know, section 361 and section uh, 351. So section 361 describes that minimally manipulated cells and tissues that are intended for homologous use only uh, and not to be combined with any other things. There can be some exceptions, uh, but they should be only used in their true form. And then section 351 uh, talks about a the biological products that are coming from living material, so an animal or a human or a microorganism, and how they could be applicable to the prevention, treatment, or cure of a disease. 
So these two sections are, are really going to be major talking points as we move forward with regenerative medicine because everything that we're limited to revolves in some manner around these sections. So uh, to give you a sense of what that means, um, right now, if we did autologous stem cells and we take the patient's own stem cells, we cannot manipulate those stem cells. So we cannot differentiate those stem cells. We cannot program those stem cells. Those stem cells have to be used in their original form. If you manipulate them, it goes against what the FDA has said that we can do. So some other organizations are manipulating those stem cells off, you know, overseas, right? So they'll take patients over to, you know, some island somewhere and do stem cell deployments of manipulated stem cells. Um, now, we won't get into whether that's good or bad. Uh, it might be great. It might not be great. Uh, don't know. But what we do know is it doesn't fall in line with uh, what the FDA has said, which is why they need to take that uh, overseas. In this country, we can still take the patient's own stem cells and deploy them, or we can take non-autologous stem cells and deploy them, but we cannot manipulate those cells. So we're going to have more and more discussions as we move forward with these two sections, and I, I believe that over the next, you know, who knows, couple years, few years, we're going to see modifications of this language, maybe for better or worse, and it'll be important to keep up on that because that will dictate where regenerative medicine goes and stem cell therapy goes. So autologous stem cells, autologous products, as we all know, that means it comes from the patient's own body. So what are some of the pros of autologous cells? Well, first of all, it's a known source of these uh, mesenchymal stem cells. We know where they come from, right? They come from you. you. You know your body. You know if you've got, you know if you're sick. Uh, you know what diseases you have. You know what infections you have. So assuming you know that, hey, these are good cells and I, you know, I got nothing going on, um, uh, that's a nice source of, of cells. Number two, you know, there's a reduced risk, or, or theoretically there should be zero risk of some type of rejection. Um, inflammation may occur, but that should be reduced as well. You know, the, the rate of a rejection should be obviously pretty, pretty much nil because it's your own cells from your own body. You know, all you're doing is you're harvesting them, spinning it down, and then putting it right back into the patient. So there's, reduced, there's some reduced inherent risks of that. Now, the cons of autologous cells, because, you know, sometimes we'll think, hey, if it's coming from you, there should be really no, you know, no, no cons to that, and that, that's not true. Number one, the biggest con is it requires a surgical procedure. The two main ways of harvesting autologous stem cells are bone marrow aspirate and lipoaspirate. That means it's coming from the bone marrow, it's coming from your fat. So lipoaspirate is usually done through a modified liposuction technique, and bone marrow aspirate is done the same old traditional way, right? Take a big trocar, shove it through a bone, and suck it out, and you should get some bone marrow. Um, yeah, it's a little more barbaric than a liposuction. Uh, uh, you know, and those are the two ways. So they're both surgical procedures. Uh, it requires additional capital, right? You have to have additional equipment, uh, usually, obviously, disposable equipment. And at this stage, a lot of that equipment has been proprietary. So, you know, you can't just get off-the-shelf syringes and whatever. You have to use proprietary equipment. Um, there are some potential for morbidity, you know, from, from these procedures. These are surgical procedures. You can get bleeding. You can get infection. You know, various things can happen. And then uh, finally, and this is a, not a small point, is, you know, what are our concentrations of stem cells and how viable are those stem cells? Lipoaspirate yields up to 100 times more stem cells than bone marrow aspirate. Um, and we won't get into which cells are better, but some people say that lipoaspirate cells may be better than bone marrow aspirate cells. So, so in, in my opinion, uh, you know, there, there really is, bone marrow aspirate is so, you know, five, ten years ago. 
Um, if you're going to do autologous stem cells, uh, you sort of ask yourself, why, are no, why wouldn't you do lipoaspirate stem cells? A higher yield, you know, a much higher yield of stem cells and potentially a better yield of quality stem cells. But still, you have a, a wide variation in cells. You're not going to know how much you're going to be able to actually get from that particular patient until after you get it. You know, you may have, um, it may be a million cells, it may be 50 million cells. And then after all that, you don't even know what the quality of those cells are. As we all get older, the quality of our cells diminishes. So you might get 50 million cells, but maybe only 500,000 of them are actually ready for work. We don't know. And so that's one of the biggest uh, cons with autologous treatments. So adipose-derived, this is a picture, this is a real picture from our practice uh, of where we're doing uh, lipoaspirate up in the upper left and um, you know, spinning it down into the, the uh, taking out the fat and taking out all the other products and getting pure uh, stem cells. So adipose-derived uh, adult uh, mesenchymal stem cells has uh, been around for a few years. We've been doing it for about five years. And um, these, these cells may differentiate into a variety of different things. So we, we, you know, they can differentiate into bone, cartilage, muscle, tendon, um, or even nerve. And we have actually seen that. So you know, we've done mesenchymal stem cell deployments using autologous uh, adipose-derived stem cells for, for a few years. And we've treated a variety of conditions. And I would say you know, looking at, at some of the most impressive ones, you know, we have multiple patients who have had multiple sclerosis who are com- you're markedly better, if not you know, very much or completely better for a year or two afterwards. I hate to say we reversed MS because I don't want to make that claim, but we sure as heck reversed a lot of the symptoms that were bothering those patients. So that it, 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 therefore, there must be a, a, a neural component to that. Um, we've had some patients who have had strokes, and we've seen um, increase in strength and increase in function with some of those patients that were very directly der- uh, uh, injected cells into you know, the areas that were affected by the stroke. Uh, we've had patients, obviously, with the traditional musculoskeletal issues that have, have uh, improved. So we know that these cells are differentiating into different products. Uh, it takes about 60 cc's of adipose to obtain about one cc's, uh, one, uh, to obtain about one cc at least of cells that contain over a million cells. We've had a lot of variation in how many cells that we are able to get. We've seen anywhere from the Uh, we've had some variation in how many cells we get uh, when we use uh, you know, adipose-derived stem cells and even bone marrow-derived uh, stem cells, where we've seen patients have anywhere from a few million cells to tens of millions of cells. Uh, and, and there's really is that you're using the same technique, same processes. It's just that various patients have you know, various quantities of stem cells. So bone marrow aspirate, uh, again, we went over that, but it's, it's really it's the same, same technique you would use for any type of bone marrow, you know, testing or, or bone marrow transplants or anything. It's the same thing. Um, going into the bone marrow, usually iliac crest, uh, but it can, it can be in other places as well, and uh, taking out the bone marrow, spinning it down, getting pure uh, stem cells from that. So it's unknown which component is more efficacious, whether it's you know, um, the, the stem cells or the growth factors that are within the bone marrow. It's also unknown whether bone marrow is, uh, you know, stem cells are actually better than than lipoaspirate stem cells, but a lot of the data suggests that lipoaspirate stem cells are, are actually uh, more active than some of the bone marrow stem cells uh, for some of the musculoskeletal and neuronal conditions that we're trying to treat. So let's switch gears and let's look at non-autologous stem cells. These are stem cells that don't come from you. They're, they come from somewhere else. And there are a few different sources they come from, but typically 
they're coming from, from some type of placental origin. Okay? So uh, what are some of the advantages? Number one, we can see a higher concentration of mesenchymal stem cells per you know, unit. So per cc, we, we'll see more. So for example, umbilical cord might yield 2 million cells per cc. Uh, number two, they're epigenetically young. These are fresh stem cells. These aren't 70-year-old stem cells. These are fresh stem cells. And, you know, many times they're harvested from the placenta, so in theory, they're newborn stem cells. But they're not coming from a baby. They're not coming from a mother. They're coming from placenta or placental tissue or umbilical cord or Wharton's jelly. And, um, and so they're young. So we think when we get a million cells, we think you know, most of that million should be active. Whereas if you're 70, 80 years old, we don't know if it's 1%, 10%. We have no idea how many are actually active. Uh, three, they're quick, easy, and reproducible. You know, there are a lot of live births uh, throughout America per day, per week, per year. So there is a, a big supply of, of these products that's available that, you know, traditionally has just literally gone in the trash can, and they haven't been saved. So now we can save those, and we can harvest these valuable components. Uh, number four, there's really no capital involved from a surgical standpoint. The only capital is really, you know, preserving that tissue uh, maintaining that tissue, make sure it gets shipped to the appropriate facilities for harvesting, uh, and, and that's done in a, um, in a well-controlled you know, manner from a temperature standpoint and a handling standpoint. And uh, number five, so far, there have been no known complications. So we haven't seen, you know, one of the biggest questions I get asked is, uh, are, these, are these stem cells that, that come from somewhere else just, you know, are we, am I going to grow like 14 feet and am I going to get these huge tumors? And that's not how it works, okay? Um, and, and we haven't seen that either. So it's not how it works, and we haven't seen it. So some of the cons, obviously, the bacteria and viruses can get transmitted. You've got to remember, if you're taking stem cells from real stem cells, if you're taking real stem cells from anywhere, they are not terminally sterilized. Okay, so I don't care what anyone says. They can't be, because if you terminally sterilize the bacteria, you're terminally sterilizing the stem cell. And then you're not really doing stem cells. What are you doing then, right? You're, well, I'll tell you what you're doing. At, at best, you're doing growth factors. But doing growth factors is not the same as doing stem cells. And, and this is actually one of the biggest problems I think we're seeing right now is uh, a lot of different uh, regenerative medicine stem cell facilities claim to be doing stem cells, and they're not. They're putting growth factors in, and they're saying that it's stem cells. In, in my opinion, that is complete and utter fraud. Um, there's a big company that we know of that's, that's uh, been doing that um, uh, for, for a few years, and, uh, and, and, but they're very careful about how they do things, which is why they haven't gotten in trouble. But a lot of people think that, uh, that all stem cells uh, or all regenerative medicine are stem cells. It's not true. A lot of it is growth factors. So you cannot sterilize these things. Otherwise, you will not have any cells. So there's a chance of infection, a chance of uh, viruses being transmitted. And uh, logistics, handling, you know. I mean, if you want to keep these cells viable and active, you've, you have to keep them at a low temperature. So that temperature is negative 200 degrees Celsius. They're very cold, very cold. Almost as cold as Chicago in the winter, but yeah. <laughs> so those have to be handled very carefully, have to be stored very carefully. You know, when you're deploying these stem cells, they have to come from a cryo-freezer. I'll show you an example of that. And you need to know how to use that cryo-freezer or you will literally melt your hand off. That's not a joke. And there aren't any stem cells that will fix your hand yet uh, if you melt it off. So you have to be very careful. Um, so that becomes a con because, uh, you know, if you don't keep the temperature right, those cell cells are going to die off. So now, again, what are you left with? You're just left with a cc of fluid, right? Maybe some growth factors at best. So some of the allergenic uh, available products, when we look at the non-autologous stem cells, include umbilical cord-derived 
mesenchymal stem cells. So these are stem cells that come from umbilical cord. Um, you look at umbilical cord tissue matrix. There are various matrices uh, that combine growth factors and stem cells uh, that are available. There are amniotic liquid suspensions uh, that contain amniotic membrane or amniotic tissue. And then, um, uh, and then there, and those are in the suspension format. And there's pure amniotic membrane that's available as well. All of these products again contain some element of growth factors and some element of mesenchymal stem cells. Wharton Jelly is a location uh, around the umbilical cord where we can uh, harvest stem cells. So if you guys all remember uh, way back from I don't know, it was like basic biology or something. Uh, you know, probably many of you haven't. Discussed how many how many like go to dinner on Friday night and talk about Wharton jelly? They say, "Can I have a croissant with some Wharton jelly?" No, um, that's not the same type of jelly, obviously. So the last time most of us have heard about this is during uh, you know basic science and, and embryo embryological development uh, when we studied that. But it's a really valuable space that is you know ultimately gone ignored until we realize that we can get these um, these cells. These are non differentiated cells that are immunoprivileged cells. So, so what does that mean? That means that uh, these are cells that don't belong to the mother. They don't belong to the baby. Um, they, they really don't belong to anyone per se. Therefore, we can inject them into other people and other patients without, uh, uh, without really seeing that graft versus host response, which is a major issue, right? Graft versus host can be catastrophic. So we're not seeing that. Um, the Wharton jelly also has some other you know, components to it, like collagen fibers and proteoglycans. It also has a high concentration of hyaluronic acid, which is important in forming that structure, that framework, um, the scaffolding, if you will, when we're injecting stem cells. So injecting stem cells without some type of scaffolding sometimes is, um, you know, maybe less efficacious than having a scaffolding in place. So some of the advantages that we see, there are about 130 million live births a year. So again, a large supply of stem cells uh, that are available from the Wharton jelly. There's no need for investing in, in um, invasive harvesting, right? We don't have to do a bone marrow aspirate. We don't have to do a, a liposuction. Uh, the rate of proliferation is, um, is possibly greater than some other sources. Um, uh, they can be easily collected at the time of birth. Uh, they're not associated with some of the ethical con concerns that we have. Uh, they're immunoprivileged. And again, they don't have that tumorogenic uh, properties that some people believe exist with uh, both autologous and non-autologous stem cells. You know, the other, the other concept is if, if there is a problem with, with tumor, um, you know, a lot of us will develop those maybe 40, 50 years out, right? 60 years out, there's some cancer, some tumor. Remember, these are epigenetically newborn cells. So, you know, we don't have data on Wharton jelly at 50 years out because it hasn't been available 50 years out. But let's say 50 years out, so you give that to someone who's, say, 60, 70 years old, and 50, 60 years out, they develop some type of tumor. Well, when they're 120 or 130 years old, um, you know, we'll deal with that, I guess. But, but probably 50, 60 years from now, we'll probably have better treatments, I would guess. In fact, uh, some of those treatments will probably be available in the next few years. So, so again, it, it, there is no evidence that it's really going to grow into that tumor. But if, if it does, you know, it's probably going to be decades out. Right? Not, not tomorrow. So some of the benefits of mesenchymal stem cells, uh, which, which you know, kind of sort of full circle goes back to the very beginning of this conversation. Ultimately, besides maybe repairing and restoring the tissue that's been damaged, 
they act as very strong anti-inflammatory cells. So this is why a lot of times after stem cell deployments, you know, we'll have patients who will say, I feel better already. It, it, it's not necessarily all in their head. Um, there is a, a, a pretty massive anti-inflammatory response. That being so, said, when we use certain growth factors, we actually see an inflammatory response. So sometimes when we use both products together, they kind of cancel each other out. But stem cells inherently have an anti-inflammatory response. They can differentiate into different cells. Uh, they can stimulate the recovery of the inherent cells that are already there. So they can actually work synergistically with the cells that already exist. And, uh, and their ability to, to do this uh, by reducing inflammation and, uh, and also modulating that, that immuno, uh, the immunological response is, is there. This is why with patients who have autoimmune disorders, we've actually seen a reversal of some of their disorders. It helps modulate the immune system. I'm not saying that'll work for every autoimmune disorders, but we've, we've, we've seen at least one patient where we had rheumatoid arthritis and a combination of uh, stem cells through multiple different deployments uh, or areas of deployment along with um, some other techniques and they had complete resolution of their RA. So this is what a cryotank looks like. Um, as you can see, there, there, there are little, uh, uh, there's a lot of little things here. This is a little styrofoam wedge that keeps the liquid nitrogen from evaporating. Um, these are little uh, um, vials uh, where you can put, uh, these are tubes where you can put vials in. Um, underneath it, you'll have a certain level of uh, liquid nitrogen, so say, you know, it's maybe up to this level, right? So you'll sort of dip these, uh, these little um, tubes in to the liquid nitrogen where they'll stay at a negative 200 degree Celsius level, which is needed to essentially cryogenically freeze the cells without uh, damaging uh, the cells and, and maintain their viability. Umbilical cord blood also has stem cells. Uh, there are a, uh, a few different companies that are out there now that have uh, umbilical cord blood. And, um, and you may find, uh, you know, uh, they may claim that there may be millions of, of cells per ml as well. Uh, the only problem is that the cord blood doesn't yield a therapeutic numbers of MSCs um, uh, unless you pull it from multiple different donors. And if you pull it from the same donor, then you have to expand the cells. And so now we run into some problems. And uh, as, as we talked about before, we cannot manipulate these cells. So then we run into problems with, with what the FDA says. In addition to that, uh, some of these cells that are coming from essentially blood products, uh, you know, may have um, some CD4 or CD34. Uh, they may be CD34 positive, which may affect their, uh, the whole graft versus host issues. Okay. So the, the reason that this, these cord blood products have been used in patients without a major graft-versus-host response is because the, the cells themselves have to be numerically low where they're not triggering the response. So you kind of now are, are left with uh, uh, this debate. Do I, do I use this product that could have a, uh, an issue um, uh, in higher amounts, but I need those higher amounts to see an effective uh, response, or do I use it, you know, as they're giving it to me, fully knowing that I'm going to see a lower response, you know, in order to uh, minimize my side effect profile. Um, so we, we don't use cord blood for that reason, because there are other products out there and other options out there that seem to, you know, give us efficacy and safety. Um, so, you know, you'll see cord blood, it'll, it'll look like cord blood, and then, um, you know, they'll extract, uh, all, they'll try to extract most of the hemoglobin out of that, and they usually do, but they may still see the proteins within that hemoglobin 
and within that, those blood products may still be, uh, be there. Again, resulting in graft versus host, theoretically. Graft versus host is, again, a catastrophic event. Uh, it can affect multiple parts of the body. You can have an acute graft versus host response that occurs in the first few months, uh, or you can have a chronic graft versus host response that can occur for months or even years later, resulting in organ failure, resulting in even death in the worst uh, uh, situation. The amniotic membrane is the inner layer of the placenta. It surrounds the baby during pregnancy. Uh, amniotic membrane has been used as a universal transplant. Um, in fact, it, we've, we've seen amniotic membrane being used in surgical procedures to help with wound healing. So, you know, I, I haven't seen a lot of surgeons use amniotic membrane um, when they're doing, say, fusion surgeries. Uh, but I, I would imagine that um, our rate of scarring would be far lower if they did. Uh, but, but they're not. We have seen amniotic membranes. So was, <clears throat> I saw data from one uh, study that looked at uh, using amniotic membrane in a patient, in a baby who was in utero for spina bifida. And so they actually repaired spina bifida in utero using amniotic membrane. And, um, and wouldn't you know it, uh, the baby was born fine uh, with no scarring uh, as a result because the amniotic membrane is inherently a, doesn't, doesn't form scar, which is a which is a unique uh, structural property that's only available, you know, during development. Uh, unfortunately, again, as we start getting more complex from a CNS standpoint and an, and an immune standpoint, we start scarring more, and, uh, and that's one of the, the, the trade-offs that we have. So it's, it's composed of a few different things. Uh, there are uh, dehydrated versions. There are terminally sterilized versions, you know, versions that only give you the uh, sort of the growth matrices, give you the growth factors, they give you the scaffolding, they give you high-chain hyaluronic acid, and, and various other uh, cytokines and cell mediators that we're looking for when we're not looking for stem cells specifically. So uh, they have those, and, then, uh, and, and we use those sometimes in conjunction with stem cells. Amniotic fluid, uh, which is something that's commonly used at a lot of stem cell clinics, um, is, uh, is it contains no living stem cells. Okay? So any, any, anytime you see anyone saying amniotic fluid, there are no living stem cells because inherently you have to terminally sterilize the amniotic fluid because it's got a bunch of crap in there, literally and figuratively. Um, so you have to clean that up and you have to you know, terminally sterilize that. Now, it may have a lot of cytokines and other proteins, but they do not contain stem cells. Uh, and so that's an important uh, uh, point to note. So amniotic fluid is not useless in regenerative medicine. It's just not stem cells. So we just need to make sure that we know what it is. So how do we look? Like, so once we have these cells... Uh, how do we differentiate these cells? How do we count these cells? There are various cell meters, cell counters that are used. We have these, um, uh, you know, in our, in our <clears throat> facility when we're using lipoaspirate stem cells to try to figure out how many stem cells do we have. This doesn't tell you how effective those stem cells are going to be. They just give you a number. So looking at, um, uh, when you, when you, if you are able to differentiate these in, in much larger laboratories, um, we can use flow cytometry and we can see what kind of cell types we have. So the markers that need to be present when you have mesenchymal stem cells uh, are CD73, CD90, and CD105. And the markers that are present when we have hematopoietic stem cells or white cells or cell linings are CD14, CD34, and CD45. So now you're not going to be able to do this in your own practice, um, obviously. I mean, these are big machines, and, and really you're not going to be able to bill for them or pay for them. So... Um, but, but let's just say you, you, you had this, or let's say some company came up to you and said, hey, we offer this whatever product. You know, the things that you have to make sure that you ask are, one, do they actually have stem cells? 
um, because, you know, again, uh, some of these products do not have stem cells. Two, what quantity of stem cells, you know, can you, can you sort of guarantee that quantity? And number three, you know, how are you deriving these stem cells? And have you actually done these types of studies on your own stem cells? Tell me what the rate of CD14, CD34, CD45 that you had. Because if that number is high, guess what that's telling you? That's telling you, yeah, they got a bunch of cells, but they're all cells that are useless. I don't need a million white cells in my stem cells, right? So if someone says, I have a million cells to give you, and they end up being a million white cells with one stem cell, technically it's a stem cell product, right? But that's obviously baloney. So you, you have to be able to uh, ask these questions and try to differentiate, okay, you know, are these mesenchymal stem cells or hematopoietic stem cells or white cells or, or cells that are part of the, some, some type of tissue lining? So we've had a lot more research in the regenerative and stem cell arena. It's gone up over the course of uh, many years, as we, can, um, as we all can imagine. You know, it's estimated that in 2017, we're going to have about 400 to 500 different publications about um, mesenchymal stem cells, specifically coming from umbilical cord uh, derivations. There's 137 clinical studies currently underway looking at um, umbilical cord mesenchymal stem cells. Uh, so, you know, the research is ongoing, the data is ongoing, there are a lot of centers, you know, doing this. This is uh, really not really in the infancy anymore. I would say it's in the, I don't know, toddler phase maybe? I don't know, what comes after infancy? Something like that. So, uh, you know, this is, this is not something that is a fad, this is not something that's going to go away. In fact, if anything, it's only going to grow and, and get even more refined and even better. Uh, any questions with that? Sure, why not? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. A PRP? Yeah, a, a lot of athletes get PRP, uh, and that's been done for, for many years. Uh, so they'll do a combination of PRP, hyperbaric oxygen, um, and probably Toradol, but uh, <laughs> we won't get into that debate, though. No, so, you know, I don't, well, I don't know this whole story, right? So, uh, you know, I, I can tell you this, that, I mean, you know, I can look at all the universities in the Chicago area, and they're not even remotely coming close to what we've been doing even three years ago. And that's in private practice. So when we have these big universities and these big, you know, institutions, they're not on the cutting edge of regenerative medicine, at least around us, and I would imagine even nationally. So, um, so what, what did he have? You know, quite frankly, it was probably just PRP, 30-year-old technology that they're touting as, you know, God knows what they're touting it as. So I don't know what he had. I don't know what was, what was, what was done. Um, so, you know, but again, remember, so we do this stuff. We do regenerative, right? But remember, at, at every given point in time, you're degenerating at the same time. So even if someone has a regenerative, uh, uh, you know, procedure, and, and we're able to see improvement, by the fact that you're living in the back, maybe the fact that you're a pro athlete, you're banging on that every single day. So it's not like it's going to prevent future, you know, injury or damage. So who knows? I don't know what was done with him, but that could have been that. In your experience or in the literature, is there an improvement in the, um, the outcomes with combining PRP or more, more specifically stem cells with hypertrophy, especially like in knees or mm -hmm. uh, So yeah, so the question is, is uh, stem cells during surgery, uh, to try to improve the outcome. There, there's a lot, there are a lot of publications on that. There are case reports on that. Um, I, I would, um, you know, my personal opinion, right, um, because, again, until, until, 
until it becomes FDA approved, which is like sort of that gold standard that, okay, we as a society have accepted this as a fact. Um, but in my opinion, yeah, absolutely, it's not going to hurt. If it's done correctly, it's not going to hurt. Uh, and there are, I have seen data. I've actually seen real pictures of people using uh, both growth factors, stem cells, or even amniotic membranes, like actual membranes around surfaces. And the healing that has occurred from that has been, been amazing. The scarring, the minimal scarring. Um, you know, we've seen, obviously, in our own practice, we've seen that with, with dozens and dozens of patients where, you know, their joints are functioning better. I've got, actually, two professional athletes, um, and uh, they were bone-on-bone, bone, and they continue to be somewhat bone-on-bone, bone, but they're able to perform at, at their top level. So, you know, that, that is definitely not a placebo effect, right? Uh, and these were all patients who were ready for a fusion or a, a joint replacement surgery. So the, uh, with non-autologous, a chance of... Oh, you know, none of this stuff is sterilized, right? If, it's, if, it's a, if these are living cells, you cannot terminally sterilize them, which is the process that we go through, right? Like, like you know, you take your autoclave, you know, and you terminally sterilize everything in there. Um, and, and yeah, viruses, bacteria, anything is a possibility when you use living tissue, living material. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I don't think there's... Right now, I don't know a way around that, because the minute you kill the bacteria, you kill the cell. You know? uh, hold on. Well, I, I tell patients, I always tell them up front, I say, well, number one, it's not FDA approved. Uh, number, one, I, number two, I cannot make any claims of any kind. Number three, you have to, you have to assume that this is whatever, 1,000, 3,000, whatever the number is. You have, to, you have to be okay to part with it and ex have no expectations. On the flip side, you know, um, I, I, you know we w wouldn't be doing this if we didn't think it would be helpful. And, um, and, uh, and, and, you know, this is where you, you know, you have to tell them, look, what we're doing is, is, you know, we're specifically choosing a certain modality. This is why we're choosing it. And you can back it up with information and data. Um, but uh, I would so far, knock on wood, but so far our biggest side effect has been that it hasn't worked. You know, but, but we've told the patients from the get-go that, look, um, it, it may not. And, and they know. And the ones that get upset saying, well, if you can't guarantee me, then I'm not going to do it. It's like, then don't. Right? And, and it's okay if they don't do it then. Hold on, let me get... Uh um, I guess I would ask, uh, um, why not? I mean, what's, is he concerned that the stem cell injection is going to magically become a tumor, or...? There's not enough data that God exists, but 90% believe in God. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, you know, you cannot tell someone, so he's 100% right. He cannot promise anyone that's going to help or not going to help, right? Um, but, uh, but at the same time, if the patient says, look, I don't want to have a surgery or I don't want to have this or that, I'd like to try stem cells, and I'm okay with paying whatever the price is for it, 
Uh, and if that procedure is done correctly with the correct products by the correct physician, um, then you, you've done everything you can to try to minimize risk and max, maximize efficacy. Um, I don't see, if, it's, if everything's done properly, I don't see a reason why this can't be done. Uh, again, the worst case scenario that, I, that would occur, infection, bleeding, and it's a waste but I don't think it's going to you know, make the multiple myeloma just magically return or anything. I, mean, I can't even foresee a scientific pathway of how that could occur. So. If it's your melanoma, they've taken like the fat or mm-hmm. something and they've extracted and stuff the Well, so, so that might be a, you know, a, maybe a, a debate. Hey, should we take his own or should we use uh, you know, maybe non-autologous stem cells? And in a patient like that, we would absolutely not use his own. So any patient, so here's one criteria. We didn't mention it, but I'm glad you asked this question. If a patient has a history of cancer, we will not use their stem cells, period. So, go ahead. Um, in your um, experience, is there any um, data from the international community that germinal systemic stem cells has any efficacy? I don't know. Damn it. I almost made it through without a question that I didn't. <laughs> Thanks, man. Uh, no. Uh, so, you know, we, we haven't really uh, um, had many kids that have come in for stem cells. Um, so, you know, our cutoff is probably, I don't know, 16 or 18 or something like that. Um, I, I don't think there's necessarily an age limit, uh, but, but I think you run into more of the how, you know, how much do you want to push the, the envelope? I mean, you know, I would say all of us that are doing this are already in a way pushing the envelope since it's not FDA approved. Everything's done through IRB studies, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we, you know, some of us are doing it correctly, some of us are not. You know, it's kind of, it, honestly, I see regenerative medicine kind of going like the opioid world, right? Where, where you know, you're going to have some people doing some really stupid stuff, and then there's going to be bad data or bad outcomes. You're going to say, oh, my God, this thing is, you know, horrible, right? And, um, or, or maybe someone will develop a tumor, and they'll blame it on the stem cells when, in fact, it had nothing to do with the stem cells, but the media will run with it. So, you know, I think, I think a lot of that's just sort of that risk, how much risk you're willing to take and scrutiny, especially if it doesn't work. You know, when you deal with kids, you have parents who have maybe expectations that are not reasonable. Um, we haven't had anyone come in for preventative because, again, it's all out of pocket, so it's going to cost money. And, and, you know, the cost is totally dependent on how much you have to do and how much you have to buy. So if you buy more stem cells, it costs more, right? If you do more, like harvesting, it costs more. Right. I still so. talk about the HA injections on people mm-hmm. who are, you know, 42, 45, and you start getting therapeutic changes. Of course you are. Mm-hmm. But Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, well, I, at that point, I think if, uh, if you're fair with the patient, you say, listen, there's no data that prevents it. And if you're willing to pay for it, you know, and, and, and the risk is zero, um, okay. But I think you should be fair to tell the patient there's no, it's not indicated for prevention. So. Are people using stem cells for osteoarthritis in the knee? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so stem cells for osteoarthritis in the knee. Yeah, absolutely. We've been doing that for... Uh, it depends on what technique we, you use. I mean, we've been doing that for about five years, and that's actually, we've seen some tremendous benefit with that. I would say, uh, we, gosh, I don't, I mean, I, I don't know what percentage are, but the vast majority, I mean, more than 75%. What's it cost? Depends on what you do, uh, and it depends on which clinic. But, uh, you know, if you're, if you're harvesting, it's going to cost more. Uh, for autologous, I think we're around 7,000 or something like that, and that includes everything, the surgery center, the physician. Oh my gosh, so we have a ton of equipment, 
um, ton of uh, disposable equipment as well. Uh, we, have two, we have two surgeons. We have a surgery center. We have five nurses. We have an entire OR that's blocked off for half a day. So you know. Well, I, I use fluoroscopy, and we'll make sure that... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, but you'll be surprised how many people don't. Yeah, well, you'd be surprised. So, so a lot of, uh, there are a lot of, so I'll tell you, you know, probably the vast majority of regenerative medicine business is at the chiropractors right now. And uh, they, they don't know, they don't know how, um, are they chiropractors here? Okay, uh, no? Yes? One? No? Okay, all right. Well, anyway, they don't know how to spell floral. So here's the thing, like, what they're doing, this is their business model, and, and again, no offense to chiros, but, you know, I got some friends who are really good chiropractors, but what I really find offensive is when you're a chiropractor and you're claiming to do stem cells when, in fact, they're not stem cells, they're amniotic fluid, and you hire like a nomad doctor who doesn't even have like a building or a picture that you can find online who will literally come there and say, okay, just shove this in, you know, charge money. So that's actually what a lot of the stem cells, the regenerative medicine, that, that's what we're seeing. So um, I'm glad you're doing fluoro because should, you should. You should do fluoro. Yeah, yeah, and you should do fluoro and, and you know, you see the spread of the, of the contrast dye. So sometimes I know you've, I'm sure you've seen where you'll see the spread and only, you know, go to a portion of the knee and it won't go to the other side. You may have to put another needle in on the other side. You, you want to make sure the whole thing, you can see contrast spreading throughout the whole thing. So that way you know that you're going to be bathing the whole entire knee with whatever it is that you're injecting. How many injections do you, do, do you need to get a good result? Uh, for the knee? Yeah. Um, usually no more than two entry points. You know, usually no more than two entry points. Oh, yeah, no, 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 same time. One, one session, one time. I mean, we, a lot of these patients we've only done once. We haven't had to do them, you know, multiple times. So just one, and, and they're good. I mean, sometimes they'll come back a year or two years later. Because remember, during those year or two years, they've been banging on their knee. They've been walking. They've been exercising, whatever. So they've degenerated what they've regenerated. So. We've seen anything from zero to a couple of years. So anywhere in between. And again, that's one of the challenges is, you know, if you, if you told me to predict who's going to do better and who's not, I, I couldn't even do it. Even after all this time, I couldn't even do it. And I think that's one of the challenges the FDA is going to have. What technology are you using? What cells are you using? How long is it going to last? Blah, blah, blah. And that's going to be a very tough one. And, and that's the biggest hurdle, I think. For... There are a few. Um, I, I don't know what lots are, but yeah, there's probably, you know, I don't know, 10 out there, 12, who knows. But, uh, you know, some of them have some yucky products and some of them have some good products. How are you going to know? I've had to, I've taken a lot of my own personal time to try to find out, you know. Um, and and uh, I, I put some questions on there that you can use to sort of ask when companies come around. Um, but, um, uh, you know, and I can talk to you afterwards about it. I don't want to do it as CME, you know, technically while we're on the clock because it's not compliant, so... There, 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 no, the ev evidence has been there for, for a while. The question becomes, um, the evidence is, how do you translate that evidence, right? So, you know, um, each product, each location, each everything is so different and so unique, and that's going to be the biggest issue here. Even if, even if I did uh, um, 
you know, even if I bought off-the-shelf stem cells that I knew I could reproduce, right, and I put it in this knee versus this knee, and I put it in your right knee versus your left knee, I, I, even that, how do you, you know, how do you do a randomized placebo-controlled trial on that? Because each knee, every pathology is different. So, you know, I could even take it as far as to your gait. Everyone's gait is a little different. You might be putting more load on your right knee versus your left knee or something like that. It's going to be very hard to have all your variables be in line, which is, which is, which is truly different than a lot of other uh, um, products in, in medicine. So we are entering a very unique world of medicine where you, you can't cut out for a lot of those variables. It's almost impossible to do a true randomized controlled placebo, you know, randomized placebo controlled, you know, double blinded trial. I mean, I don't know how you're going to do that. And I, and I think that's what the FDA wants because they want to call this a drug so they can regulate it. But if they don't call it a drug, then we're in the situation we're in now, which is, I don't even know what this is, right? It's not, there, there is no FDA approval. And until we have approval, insurances aren't going to cover it. And if insurances don't cover it, then you know, a lot of patients won't be able to have it. But if we want insurances to cover it, which some of them will say, hey, yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, if I do a, a even if I do a stem cell and it's 5,000, even if it's 10,000, and I am able to avoid a knee replacement and I save the insurance company $100,000 on the back end, that's massive. But I can't do that until the FDA is approved. What's that? Well, you've got to show it works. But even if we got past that, even if I showed the insurance company, look at all this data or whatever, you know, they've got to have an FDA approval. They've got to have an indication. Because so they're, they're, they're going to look at those guidelines, and the guidelines are going to say, well, we don't have an FDA indication for this. It's a mess. It's, it's, it's challenging. I don't, have the, I don't know actually how it's all going to turn out. I can't even imagine how it's all going to turn out uh, because there's too many variables in it. Um, so I, I don't know. It might actually end up uh, opening up a whole new you know, way of doing business, just like medical cannabis has opened up a whole new way of doing business, where, where this ends up becoming a whole... This is not a drug, and it's not a, you know, it's not an organ transplant. It's its own little thing. And I think maybe that's the best way that this can move forward, is opening up a whole new category, you know, not calling it a drug. You call it a drug, and you just... Now, if you call it a drug, then technically you don't even own your own stem cells, right? So what does that mean? <laughs> So I think you just had to open up into a whole new subsection of, of you know, the insurance issues and FDA issues. There's a question, I think. No, we're good? All right, thanks, guys.